we will now read Mark 2 for you, 1 through 12, our, um, what we're focusing on today for the sermon teaching. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Amen. So I forgot to introduce myself. My name's Matt. Thanks for coming to church. Um, one of the things I, I love about these 12 verses is I believe it gives such a picture of what a church can be if they believe that Jesus can do the kinds of things these men believe Jesus could do. Right? These men were stirred. These men were moved. And they brought a man who needed Jesus to Jesus. And I think a church that is that captivated by who Jesus is and believes that he can do the kinds of things that the scripture says he can do, you don't sit idly back. So let's pray. Lord, take... um, this text and burn it into our hearts. Help us to see Jesus as these men saw Jesus. And then, Lord, keep doing one miracle after another so that we, like the people at the end of this story, just stand amazed and say, we have never seen anything like this. Amen. A little bit over a week ago, May 15th, there was an article in the New York Times written by a woman named Anne Bernard entitled, Why We Spent Seven Years Documenting Syria's Secret Torture Prisons. In a few paragraphs in the article, we read, We began to hear detailed witness accounts of torture and neglect so dark and sadistic that they were almost unbelievable, even sometimes to the survivors themselves. Anne writes, bit by bit I found people willing to trust me completely with their stories, and I heard every technical detail 
of the arrests, beatings, torture methods, and forced confessions. There were large courtyards packed with detainees, as if all of Syria had been arrested, one survivor told me. Some images kept coming back to me. A prisoner locked up alone with a decaying corpse for so long that he hallucinated that it was talking to him. Detainees hung for hours by one arm from a hook in a meat truck as it traveled over bumpy roads. An interrogator pausing while torturing a prisoner to speak tenderly on a cell phone to a young child. A teenager dying slowly, racked by pain and infections, after guards doused his own torso with fuel and set him alight. A lawyer forced to eat his own feces. The article goes on to explain, according to the Syrian Network for Human Rights, the number of Syrians documented as disappeared by the Islamic State based on the terrorist group's public broadcasts of its atrocities is around 5,000, but it's dwarfed by the number of missing in government detention, 127,000, where sexual assault is also rampant. All the research says both numbers are likely under counts. One country, so much evil, so much suffering. And then you take a step back and know that over half of the globe, about three billion people, they live on less than $2.50 a day. 1.3 billion of the three billion live in extreme poverty, which is less than $1.25 a day. One billion children worldwide are living in poverty. 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. And in the United States, there are 1.5 million households who live on $2 a day or less. Now, for some in this room, they know this. They've felt some of the economic burdens. They know how hard it is to find a job and keep a job. They know... Um, as soon as they land a new apartment, they have landlords finding reasons to throw them out and keep their deposits. Then there's some in the room that don't like hearing statistics. So it's too overwhelming. It might make me not want to go out for lunch to Applebee's if I allowed the weight of suffering in my city, let alone the world, to strike my soul. What I want to look at in this text are three major kind of movements in the text or scenes in the story. First idea is when faith sees suffering. When faith sees suffering. Second, when Jesus sees faith. And then third, when people see Jesus. What do we do when we see suffering? Well, well I want to just take a moment and step back and look at these four men when they see suffering and they have faith. So look at this story. We got to kind of understand what's going on. So it says a few days later, which is basically it's a generic expression in that culture that it could be a few days as in literally three or four days. It could be three or four weeks. It could be hundred days. Just time has passed. And then it says Jesus comes back to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is it seems to be, looking at the rest of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, this is kind of ministry center. This is where Simon Peter is from, and it seems like they come back to Capernaum often. But for a while, they left Capernaum because he was getting a little too popular, 
and he wasn't able to do the kind of ministry he wanted, so he went away, and then it looks like he sneaks back in, but <laughs> the people hear that he has come back home. And so, verse 2 says, they gather in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. I read this week that homes in the ancient world could really only be as big as the trees that they cut down, and they don't have gigantic, the kind of gigantic trees that we think of when we think of tree. I mean, these, these are 10 to maybe 15 feet at the widest point of these homes and they could lay these trees across and then end up building some sort of thatch roof. That, that's how big it is. And now this room is packed with people and then surrounding it and it's, it's just jam-packed. People are there because they hear about this Jesus of Nazareth who had been in town a few days or weeks previously healing any person who got to him at that time. And then it says he got out of Dodge. And so, going on in verse 3, it says, Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And it says, Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. The literal Greek is they unroofed the roof. I mean, they, they're, they're going to town. Um, Often uh, you would have access to these roofs even by a, a stair or a ladder and on top of the roof they might sleep at night because of the nice cool weather and the, that climate. Um, either way, it's some sort of wood, mud, thatch structure and they want to get to Jesus. Now why are they so animated? Well, they remember that Jesus had been in town and then he just disappeared. They don't want Jesus to disappear. They're going to get to Jesus one way or another. A number of weeks ago, I gave you this definition of faith that comes from a British pastor named Alec Mateer. This is his definition of faith. This is, I think this is gold. Write it in the margin of your Bible or tattoo it on your left calf. Faith is action taken on evidence driven by conviction. Faith is action taken on evidence, driven by conviction. And these men have faith. And it's active. It's taken on evidence. They would have run into other people from Capernaum that had been sick that weren't sick. And so now they have conviction that we need to get this man to Jesus. They're, they're going to do it. And what I love about faith, like what is faith? Well, faith is determined. Faith is creative. Faith will not take no for an answer. Faith gets around crowds. Faith unroofs roofs. I love that. When we lived out in uh, Colorado, we lived in Littleton, one of the suburbs of Denver, and we were part of a church called Ambassador Church. And in this church, there was a couple named Jeff and Donna Wishman. Be careful that you put your picture online. I just found that last week, Googling their name. What picture will they find of you? Um, so Donna, a number of years previously, had uh, done this, this horse ministry for people with special needs, and they had built a relationship with a man named Richie. 
And Richie was a person who had been born with cerebral palsy and was fairly able-bodied until about the time he turned 30 and his whole body started falling apart. Um, But Richie um, didn't have much interest in God, but he did appreciate a family that cared for him. Uh, Richie, uh, some of the things I remember about Richie was he always had bad breath. He had uh, bad teeth. He uh, was pretty lewd in his conversation. Uh, He liked to flirt with my wife. Um, Well, here's what I love about Jeff and Donna. They wanted to bring Richie to Jesus. And they were going to do whatever they could to get Richie to Jesus. Well, it's not easy to transport a man in a wheelchair, an automated one. And so this creative couple that were going to be determined to get their friend to Jesus, they bought a van for Richie. And they outfitted this van so that anybody, even poor seminary students, could figure out how to get him into this van so that people could bring him to church or people could take him out for dinner because they wanted Richie to have an encounter with Jesus. And that's what I believe is this main kind of movement is when faith sees suffering, only an encounter with Jesus will do. When faith sees suffering, only an encounter with Jesus will do. And people who have faith will do creative, determined things to make sure suffering people have an encounter with Jesus. Because God, Jesus can do something. These people were going (laughs) to unroof the roof if necessary. Just, just even just a few kind of maybe even application points under this first idea. Um, many of us should probably think back this week and thank God for the people who saw the suffering in our lives and did everything they could do to help us have an encounter with Jesus. There were people in your past that saw you suffering, suffering in sin, maybe loneliness, maybe fear, maybe illness. Maybe it's recently Someone saw your suffering and they had faith and they wanted to help you have an encounter with Jesus. So who could you, first of all, thank God this week, right? Someone saw your suffering, they had faith in Jesus and they were creative and determined to make sure you were brought to Jesus. If you are in this place, if you're the one suffering right now, and the text is quiet on Did the men just bring this disabled man of their own volition, or did the man say, please take me to Jesus? I would just say that if you are suffering, I pray that your faith would lead you to go to God, ask Jesus to touch you. You might have to ask for help to those of people you know who have faith, and help me get to know Jesus. Help me to have an encounter. But for many of us, what I want us to realize is is if we have faith that Jesus can do things, big things, then we grab one of the four corners of the mat that someone is suffering on and we bring them to Jesus. Grab a corner and bring them to Jesus. Even some of these big statistics that cause us maybe to step back and be like, I don't want to, I can't handle this much suffering. What does it look like for you to grab a corner of the world's suffering? and say, I'm going to carry this part to Jesus. I appreciate those who've 
adopted compassion children in, and they give their $30 to $40 a month just to, just to say, I'm going to help one kid not suffer, one kid to be educated, one kid to be fed, one kid to have doctor's care. Maybe you volunteer in a school. Maybe you go read to a kindergarten class. I think a lot of times we see suffering like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Just grab a corner, a corner, and be determined. Be compassionate. Be creative. Because when people have an encounter with Jesus, amazing things happen. When faith sees suffering, only an encounter with Jesus will do. Second movement. When Jesus sees faith, he is pleased to dispense grace. When Jesus sees faith, when he sees that he's pleased to dispense grace. Look at verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I bet everybody else in the room is feeling kind of embarrassed at the moment, right? We have this traveling teacher who's doing marvelous things, and we're having this wonderful listening session where we're listening to Jesus teach, and there's dirt falling on our heads. That's a little awkward, you know? I mean, people are like dusting dirt off their head and like, oh man, what's going on? And then eventually there's this big opening and maybe there's sunlight coming in and everybody's sitting there going, oh my word, what is Jesus going to do now? And then this body starts coming down from the ceiling. This is an awkward moment. And I think everyone in the room is feeling uncomfortable and I think you, you, you'll get a sense that like Jesus has this little happy giggle. Oh. Oh, he loves faith. Uh, at prayer time this morning, Daryl read uh, Hebrews eleven six. It says, actually, it's impossible to please God without faith. But he loves to reward those who earnestly seek him. Faith believes that Jesus delights to dispense grace. Jesus does not sit up in heaven going, I may or may not be kind today. This is not, this, these people understand that Jesus dispenses grace. They have evidence based on other people's lives. They're going to get their friend to Jesus. They bring it down. Everyone else feels uncomfortable, and Jesus is like, what a neat opportunity. <laughs> this is so great. And he says, son, 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 your sins are forgiven. We actually don't know much about the man other than the little Greek word that's, that's in there for his mat. And it's the mat of a poor person. That's all we know. So he's a paralyzed, probably poor man. And this traveling, powerful teacher calls him son and says, your sins are forgiven. But everyone in the room and then maybe everyone in the room right now is sitting there going, uh, he wants to walk. Why does he bring up sin when we have a suffering man? And this is, this is key. This is probably one of the key things to understanding Christianity, actually. 
You see, any major religious movement, any great religious teacher or thinker that has ever lived, any philosopher, they usually have to answer four major questions, right? Where did we come from? What's wrong with the world? <laughs> Is there any hope? Right, those are three. I mean, and at some level, you have major movements like Buddhism. Buddhism would say, where did we come from? And it's like, well, the universe is this endless cycle that's been going on forever. Uh, there's this constant cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that humans have desire. And we desire these, this elusive reality. And so where, where is your hope? Your hope is to get enlightenment, where you withdraw from the desires of this world to escape this endless cycle. And you, you, you're, you're free and you enter into the, the blissful peace of nirvana where there's no longer any desire. That's Buddhism's solution. And so the way to experience that is to take the middle way. That's your response. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to want too much. I'm not going to want too little, little. I'm just going to be. Hum. That's actually why you hum, right? I'm going to just be. One of the major movements that have shaped culture over the last, uh, oh, 50 to 100 years, which is pretty much general mainstream culture, uh, it's actually shaped from Marxism. And Marxism says that the major problem in the world is oppression. And the, the solution is to overcome oppressors. And the, the ultimate reality is when the working class throws out the capitalist class and we all reach economic and social equality. That's where we're moving. So Christianity has a, a little different thing. It doesn't, the, the ultimate issue, well, God, first of all, where do we come from? We come from God who out of his creative genius and joy creates a world full of life and beauty. And he places humanity at the top of this creation to rule and to reign and to nurture and to multiply the goodness and beauty and joy that, Je that the Father has started. But the problem, problem is that man, the women, they rejected God. They will not let God be God. We will rule ourselves. We don't live in light of what God's view of joy and beauty is. We live out of what we want for joy. And because humanity was created at the top of creation to rule and to reign, when we rejected God, when we said no to God, we infected all of creation with ugliness. Sometimes the Bible calls it a curse. It is our sinful hearts have tainted the whole world. And so in Romans 8, it says, the world has been subjected to decay. And so ultimately, all suffering, all sorrow, all brokenness, it, it stems back to our first parents, and it is propagated by us today that we bring more decay into the world and into our families and into our workplaces. It's still here. It works a little bit like this, that some of you in the weekend of Thanksgiving or early December are going to go to some tree farm or the modern tree farm known as Home Depot, and you're going to pick out a tree and you're going to bring it home, you know, buy this nice scotch pine. And Well, here's the thing. As soon as that tree was cut, it is dead and dying. Now, some will stay greener longer than others, and you can 
cover that thing with ornaments and tinsels and light, and it can look good for a long time, but it is dead and it is dying. In many ways, the, pro- the problem, the fundamental problem with humanity is in our sin, we've been rejected from God and we've been cut out from life. Now, some of you are greener than others, but you're all going to die. God bless you. Go in peace. Right. But the idea is we're all, we're all these um, life forms, right, that we're supposed to be embedded in a, a relationship with God where we would get life and joy and passion. But once it's been cut, we are dead and dying, and we bring that death everywhere we go. And it's been going on for thousands of years. And so when Jesus sees a man coming down who is paralyzed, he knows the greatest problem. It's not that the man can't walk. It's that the man has sin. If we can get to the root of the problem, if we can get to the source of all the suffering, We can give this man real hope, real change. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. Things can be made right, right now between you and God. I have no idea how the man took it at that moment. Like, was he disappointed? (laughs) Was he excited? Because it's even, think about now, just it's tempting today. People in the 21st century who are suffering greatly, they might see in the newspaper or on some uh, dangerous cable television show that some traveling healing televangelist is coming to town. And they take all their suffering into some auditorium and they look at this faith healing, supposedly faith healing person to the front and they think that person can take away my problems. That person can't, right? Let alone it's psychosemantic and probably driven by greed. But even if Jesus only healed that man physically, he hasn't healed him completely. He has to go to the root. This man has sinned against God. He's not right with him. He has to be restored to God. And wherever you are physically suffering, mentally suffering, emotionally suffering, if you trust Christ for your life, to take away your sin and your curse, he can speak the same words to you. Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. You may be physically healed or emotionally healed in a powerful way at that moment. You might not. But that reconnection to God now assures you that at death you will be with God forever. And then one day the promise is you will be given a body like Jesus' body. That's the hope that's held out. We trust God to restore us through Jesus, through the forgiveness of sins. We need to be reconnected. We've been cut off. We have to be grafted back in. When Jesus sees faith, he's pleased to dispense grace. And in so doing, what we see there in verse 5, though, it causes, uh, uh, it causes the crowds to have to respond. Right? When Jesus shows up, people respond. And so uh, this third idea is when people see Jesus, one of two things. They either sit in judgment or they can't stay the same. 
When people see Jesus, when Jesus manifests himself in a real powerful way, people will either stand back and sit in judgment or they will never be the same. Group number one, sit in judgment. So notice who's sitting there. It says, now some teachers of the law, they're sitting there. Now teachers of the law, this is an elite class. This is the 1% bright, intelligent, Bible knowledge people. And when they heard that Jesus, the traveling preacher, teacher, healer man was back in town, they were the first ones to get inside that door. And they hear something and they do not like it. It Says they are thinking to themselves. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, do you guys catch the irony? These people in their minds and hearts are saying, no one can do stuff like this like God, and the man in the room knows what they're thinking, just like that. And what does he say? He says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, this is a somewhat troubling verse, but most people believe it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see it, it's internal and invisible, than to, than to say, um, <laughs> you can walk now. Right? One of those can get proven very quickly. One of them you have to take on faith. Now, we actually know in order for someone to be forgiven, it's going to take the suffering death of Jesus. So in some ways, forgiveness is actually much more hard. They don't know that yet. Still, verse 10, Jesus says, but I want you to know this, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So when people see Jesus, they either sit in judgment, or they can't stay the same. When the Teachers of the law see a man pronouncing forgiveness, a human person pronouncing forgiveness. They uh, say, hey, that is God's prerogative. Only God can forgive sins. Like in the back of their mind, they're like, Houston, we have a problem. This teacher, why are they there? They're there, they're looking. They are looking for Jesus to make a mistake. That's why they're there. They're trying to be like, is this guy legit or is he a charlatan? And so when he says those words, they're like charlatan, blasphemer, dangerous teacher. But Jesus has to bring them along in their theology. He has to, he has trying to show them, okay, now on one level you're right. Only God can forgive sins. But I am the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
Who is the Son of Man? Well, you can actually look in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. The Son of Man is God's heavenly agent who's given authority over the entire earth. So he's taking this term and he's saying, I am that heavenly agent with authority over the earth. But if you pull this farther, we're going to see in the rest of the New Testament things like, well, who is the Son of Man? Well, he is the one who created all things, and in things, all these things, they have their being. We're going to learn that the Son is in an equal relationship with the Father, equal in dignity and glory, and the Father has granted the Son authority on earth to judge the living and the dead. One of the last things Jesus says before he's taken from this earth, he says, in light of my life and my death and my resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. This Son of Man has authority to forgive, and he backs it up by saying, walk. What I just did in that man's soul is just as legit as what I just did in that man's legs. Walk. And the man walks. I believe that people at different times in their life, they have an opportunity to see Jesus show himself. Um, and it, maybe you just see it in someone else's life. I wanted to do this, but I'm not sure I'd still have a job. So I'm going to put my hands in my pockets while I do this. I can tell you that Jesus has authority on this earth to forgive sins because in this room, in this room, he has healed adulterers. He has healed people addicted to pornography. He has healed people addicted to alcohol. He has brought people out of greed and despair. I'm not pointing at anyone, but there are people in this room that through the power and authority of Jesus alone, and they would give him such credit that he alone has saved them. And you know some of these people. Maybe in this church or out in the world, and you're going to have a choice to either sit in judgment on this Jesus who you're seeing, or you yourself will never be the same. You'll be blown away that this Jesus, who was supposedly killed, buried, and longed to be forgotten, and it's a big hoax, he's been changing and transforming people and civilization for 2,000 years, like no one in history has ever even come close. So when we see Jesus, we either sit in judgment or we won't ever possibly be the same. And so kind of two closing pieces of application then. Bring your own suffering and bring your own sin to the Son of God. Bring your own suffering, bring your own sin, bring it to the Son of God. He can do amazing things. I've been praying this week. I love that a year from now, God has done so many things through the work of Jesus Christ that we get to say what these people said in verse 12. We've never seen anything like this. But it begins by us individually bringing our sin, our suffering, and our shame, and we bring it to Jesus because he's the only one who can do anything. I had the privilege this past week of sitting on the superintendent search for the new Marion superintendent. And these were fine people, and they chose a great person. But they, they really have a lot of confidence in public education saving our country. 
I love public education. I like home education. I like private education. It ain't going to save our country. We have a family member who's in a political action group, and he recently said in an interview that the greatest thing for humanity is free enterprise. It'll do some good. It's not going to save the world. We have to bring our sin and our suffering and our shame to Jesus. But once you have tasted and once you have seen the Lord is good, who will you bring to Jesus? It's unlikely, I really do, it's unlikely that people are going to come to this church. You're going to have to bring them. They're gonna, you're going to have to share about your sin and your suffering and your shame that Jesus has met really and truly. It's just a reality. The church is a social pariah right now. We're not popular. We're dangerous. And it's going to be through your life and your ministry, going to people who are suffering, picking up a corner of the mat and bringing them to Jesus And God will do wonderful things. Let me pray for us as a church. Lord, I'm thankful that in your mercy and in your grace, many of us had the privilege of having an encounter with Jesus, seeing who he is, knowing him as the Son of God who is able to forgive sins and make bodies whole. And uh, we just pray that we'd have the opportunity to see other people meet Jesus like that. So if there's anyone here today and they haven't come to Jesus and said, forgive me, heal me, take me, and that they would, and they would meet Jesus in a profound way. And then I pray that as we go out this week, we would have eyes to see the suffering. And rather than run from suffering or think that we can't do enough, we, we'd grab our little corner and we'd do what we can to bring people to Jesus. Amen.